0: and welcome back to another episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady. This week on the podcast, we're hearing from our first postdoc, Brian Juarez. Brian is a fellow amphibian-loving scientist who received his bachelor's degree from UC Santa Barbara, his master's degree from the University of Michigan, and most recently, his PhD from Iowa State University. After finishing his PhD, Brian started a postdoc at Stanford where he is co-mentored by Lauren O'Connell and Liz Hadley. I knew I really wanted to have Brian on the podcast when I heard about his thesis defense, which he held in both English and Spanish, so that his parents, who... He refers to as the heroes of his story, which we'll talk more about in this episode, so that they would feel included and understand what was going on in his talk. I think this story is really emblematic of how Brian thinks about inclusion and diversity in science more broadly. Brian and I talked quite a bit about this in the interview and about how important it is for us to understand the huge range of backgrounds that people are coming from when they're entering into science and how that may impact the way that they think about themselves as scientists and also how they may be perceived by the scientific community. One quick note before we start, which is just that we were having a few little technical issues, so I apologize for the audio being glitchy in a few places. But even with these small little blips, this conversation was super lovely and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my interview with Brian. Hi Brian thanks so much for being here
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: all right so let's start out with just uh, an easy question can you tell us who you are what your job or position is I know you're sort of moving from one position to another so you can tell us about both um, and what your research is about
1: all right. So my name is Brian Juarez. I uh, just finished my Ph.D. at Iowa State University in the lab of Dean Adams, and um, I'm transitioning this summer into an NSF postdoc in the labs of doctors Lauren O'Connell and Elizabeth Hadley at Stanford. <laughs> uh, and my research is generally about the evolution of form and function. So in the past, I've studied different things like vision and jumping, and I'm super excited about my next projects that lie at the interface of behavior and ecophysiology. And so to, to give a broad context of what I mean by that, um, I want to understand how DNA and proteins that are related to water physiology change in response to climate and how that's related to the evolution of mating behaviors in frogs.
0: Cool. So can you tell us a little bit more like what are there proteins in terms of, you know, dealing with water that people might be familiar with Um, or yeah, just a little bit more about like what that means, I guess, and why you think it's related Mm -hmm. to climate change.
1: Sure. So yeah, there, I, (laughs) uh, I wish I had a bit more of a background in physiology, but from what I remember, just almost every uh, metabolic process that happens in cells, like there's water in it at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially when we're talking about frogs that we think traditionally um, have, are very strongly associated with water, I thought, oh, well, look at this obvious question no one has asked. So specifically, the proteins I'm talking about are aquaporin proteins. Um, and I first heard of aquaporin proteins uh, when I was in an undergrad. And so I remember my instructor showing me curves of the rate of water uptake through cell membranes. And mm-hmm. then I I believe they had engineered the aquaporins out of those cell membranes, Um, and then compared to the rate of water uptake in cells that had those aquaporins, and it was just, you know, completely different curve there, um, implying that the aquaporins really, really increased the rate of uh, water uptake. They basically improved diffusion using uh, ion pumps. Mm -hmm. And so... The reason I think that they're related to climate change is because, well, there's obviously still lots of experiments to be done, but frogs breed in water. And so while they're in the water, they're being hunted upon and they also need to do some praying of themselves, uh, well, of other organisms. And so I think since since we know that their their skin is very different from, say, reptiles or turtles, well, turtles are reptiles, sorry. Anyway, mm-hmm. their skin is permeable is the point here. Mm-hmm. And so if their skin is permeable, then... I'm willing to bet that the water physiology, the, the concentration gradients of ions and how much water their body bodies need are going to be pretty important in determining when they decide to breed, how long they're breeding for. And that's also going to matter in the context of how hot it is, how humid it is, um, how often it rains, et cetera. So those questions are still unanswered. And that's the point of my research there, is trying to figure out what aspect of climate is actually important to these frogs within Mm -hmm. the context of the water physiology.
0: Very cool. And so is that what you were working on in your PhD? Or can you tell us a bit more about your PhD work? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so for my PhD, I was working on a completely different uh, system there, with the exception of the frogs. You you Mm -hmm. can't forget the froggos. (laughs) So uh, for my PhD, I studied... The relationship in between morphology and jumping performance in frogs. So I was interested in the evolution of microhabitats and the different aspects of jumping performance across say 7,000 species of frogs. Of course I didn't get 7,000 species, and I was close, just kidding, I absolutely was not. But um, what I wanted to study, what I wanted to figure out specifically was can we actually derive some equations that allow us to make predictions on how well relatively species jump based mm-hmm. off of their anatomy, their muscles and their skeletons? Uh, and so I did that. And then I went on to ask other questions about, oh, well, are there are there differences across the different microhabitats in how fast they can jump or how energetically they jump? And also the really cool aspect of my research is that it was the one of the first studies that compared male versus female jumping performance so traditionally because in the field it's very easy to find males because they're calling during the breeding season versus finding females um, most of the research is based off of male frogs so with the equations i derived then that allowed me to study female jumping evolution which did show uh, some important differences in between male and female jumping
0: Cool. Can you share a little bit of what you found? I don't know if it's published yet or not, so you don't need to. Oh, <laughs> not
1: published. Not but. yet. But but uh, one one part that I do want to share that I think is it just blew my mind when I found the result. So we're used to thinking of sexual dimorphism in frogs, which is differences in between male and female morphology, um, as being concentrated in 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 size. So sexual mm-hmm. size dimorphism, uh. Lots of There's lots of research showing that, well, sexual size dimorphism is pronounced across all frogs, that uh, I believe it's 90% of frog species show sexual size dimorphism, and 75% of those 90% uh, are cases where the female is much larger than the male. Mm-hmm. And when those differences do occur, the percent difference in the size, I believe uh, my research showed when I actually physically took these measurements of body length or body size, Um, it showed that the differences were about 15% in body size in between males and females. So Mm -hmm. I also took other measurements of muscle size, well, muscle diameters of of the leg muscles. And there I found, again, dimorphism, sexual dimorphism. But this time, instead of 15%, there was muscle dimorphism of about 30% where females had 30% larger muscles on average compared to males of the same size across species. Wow. So just that huge change. It's, you know, it's popular science to say sexual size dimorphism in frogs. It's this awesome, great thing, but there's almost double the magnitude in the dimorphism of the muscles and it's been unidentified so far so yeah that's one really thing i'm i guess i would say i'm proud of for having found it was it was such a cool finding
0: so what got you interested in this like have you always been interested in in frogs or yeah how did your interest in science begin
1: all right so i'll answer the frog question first uh uh, I'm recalling a lot of my grad school interviews asking me, oh, well, why do you want to study frogs? Which is a fair question. Um, yep. And the story I always like to tell is uh, just the classes that I took in undergrad. I took a lot of organismal classes and <laughs> my experiences growing up were I mean, we all learn about like bears and lions, dinosaurs, et cetera. Um, but I think a common theme throughout uh, our discussion will be me coming back to physiology. So when it came time to my herpetology class, I thought, oh, well, yeah, I generally know how physiology works in organisms. They're warm-blooded, you know, they have hair, etc. But amphibians, things that are cold-blooded, they're completely different. Um, and so that really got me interested in, oh, well, how does the rest of their biology get affected? And when you look at amphibian fossils, they just... To me, they're just like the most amazing thing um, because there's just nothing like them around today. Um, Like some of them have just extremely extremely long heads that grow sideways. And it's like, why did you have such a weird shaped head? Um, But just, I don't know, everything about amphibians and and frogs just kind of drew me in. um, And it it was probably because of that herpetology class I took in college. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally, how did I become interested in science? So I think that to answer that, I. I would like to give a bit of a background on myself, if that's okay.
0: Yeah, of course, please.
1: <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, I don't think it's a standard answer or one that I've heard very many, many people talk about. Um, but so. Ironically, I think I became interested in science in nature specifically because I, I was just never around nature when I was growing up. So there's people that, oh well, I've I've been to lots lots of biological stations growing up, etc. I'm I'm the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Los Angeles, and well, there's a lot of pavement in Los Angeles, so <laughs> it's it's also hard to see nature when, when you when you when you have no monies. So I just mm-hmm. never got around much,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and some of that has to do with growing up Mexican in Los Angeles, I think, um, and. So there, there, I think there was definitely some cultural influence in my relationship to nature when I was growing up. So I think with uh, me in my case, I was safe at home, um, I was protected, and I mean, I was with family there. And so there's, there's a lot of parental influence there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I certainly didn't grow up going camping over the weekend, hang out with friends at a summer camp, not that I had money to do that, uh, or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people that grew up with watchful parents where the family unit is the core of basically everything you do, um, can relate to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to to kind of frame this story a bit more, it's, it's not just that family was important to us. It's, it's more than that. So it's more like there, there's nothing if not family. And so I I have a really strong bond with my immediate family. Um, and I mean, we hung out on the weekends, but didn't really experience nature in the same way that other people, other families might've. So that was the background that I wanted to give, Mm -hmm. uh, so, like throughout grade school, I mentioned, uh, well maybe, maybe I haven't, but uh, yeah, we didn't grow up with very much money. And besides museums, which I only went to because they were free field trips that were paid for by the school, I had my backyard, and I think just the things I found in my backyard were just crucial in my in, in developing my interest for for nature. So, the things I grew up with, seeing the smells in my backyard. I played with lots of roly polies, and I try to catch all the monarch butterflies or the whites and sulfurs that I saw uh, fluttering about. And um, I think I got stung by bees a lot. I I know exactly how that feels because I just wanted to, you know, like pick them up and see them so badly, you know what they're really all about. Um, I I couldn't resist, so i I thought, oh well, yeah, I'll get stung, but I'll get to check out this cool bee. You're
0: <laughs> brave. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i guess i was a brave little kid for doing that i I definitely (laughs) wouldn't do that nowadays but uh um i also wanted to say that at some point i think it was my older sister heli uh angelica heli for short in spanish and so uh she gave me one of the best gifts i think i still remember this to this day it was a little a little plastic container and it wasn't any larger than my my kid hand at the time (laughs) uh but so this, the special part of this container was was the top so this top it had a magnet like a built-in magnifying glass to it and i just went crazy with that thing like put all sorts of ants and plants and beetles and snails in that thing to look at them more and same with the bees figure out what they're about you know yeah um so
0: <laughs> that's such a great gift
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i could i have a very vivid memory of it so given that backdrop you can imagine how just mind-blown i was the first time i saw like a, a cast of a giant sloth or a saber-toothed tiger like the actual physical teeth that were uh, fossilized or sub fossilized um, or woolly mammoths up close mm-hmm. so my favorite place in the world just hands down is the La Brea tar pits in los mm-hmm. angeles and that's my favorite thing about that place is well i guess i have two favorite things the tar pits are just right there like you can see where these animals fell into tar died, became fossilized, and those same tar pits are spitting those fossils back out today. And my second favorite thing is that that's probably the first place where I got to see a scientist up close. So at the tar pits, there's a section of the museum where there's there's glass, and you could see the scientists back there that that are removing tar from all of the fossils that get spat back up by the tar pits. Um, so that, I think that really, really stuck with me throughout the years.
0: Yeah, that's a cool... Take on a museum, like right. I feel like museums are usually sort of non-living specimen or currently non-living specimens, right, that are like on display. But the idea of like showing scientists working as part of the museum is really cool because I think Mm -hmm. it's often people don't really know what it means to be a scientist oftentimes and like what the work looks like. So that's really cool to have that.
1: Right. Exactly. And so, to me, as a little kid, I thought, well, I I mean, I kind of do this in my backyard. There's like Dirt on a on a on a little ant. Well, I could like clean it up, get a better look at it, and it's. I mean, it's basically the same thing with these fossils. Remove some tar very carefully, and then take a better look at the fossil. So, it, I don't know. Maybe I thought, oh well, I could do this someday, but uh, yeah, there there are other challenges along the way.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. So then, do you want to tell us about like going to college and all of that sort of your trajectory to a PhD?
1: Yeah. So. When I think of uh, the important bits of my trajectory towards my PhD, uh, I think there are a lot of good times, but maybe it's useful for people to hear the bad times. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. So so, uh, I'll start with the good, though. So the really good times, I think, were just taking chemistry and physiology classes because I mean, like I said, I didn't really experience nature too much when I was a kid. And to discover that there was just a whole absolute new world out there for me that was made up of molecules and organelles, etc. that was another, uh, another mind, mind blow. <laughs> um, and so I think ultimately it was my physiology class that drew me into science. I thought I want to know how the human body works, how other organisms work, and how they got to be that way. Mm-hmm. So those were, uh, I think, my, my really good experiences. So along the way, though, I, I, I received a lot of pushback from, I think, the people I wouldn't expect pushback from sometimes. But mm-hmm. uh, so, for example, um, I talked to a lot of people. They told me, don't be a high school teacher. Like, you don't want to do that. You won't make any money. Um, and nowadays, people also tell me, don't do grad school. Don't go into academia. You are you won't make any money. And I think I understand that when people say that it's relative to other fields, you know, because I mean, I could be an engineer and making so much more money. Um, But what I think some privileged people understand less so is the fact that grad students make more money than a lot of people who are raising a family of four or six or eight. So I think I do not. I understand what people say when they say grad students don't make a lot of money. But I think that it's also important to understand relatively uh, the different lived experiences of people. Yeah. Especially when one is when one's goal is to mentor these people. So I I think understanding people's lived experiences is, is crucial towards being an effective mentor from that sense. Uh, there's two more things I believe that I wanted to talk about that were, uh, important for my trajectory. I think, um, one of those two things is I think being talked a lot, talked a lot about right now. and it's the importance of writing, uh, field gear costs into one's grants Mm. and so i really relate to that because you know good boots like field boots especially when like i was when you're interested in like geology you're going to be stepping on some hard rocks you need some really good boots um to do that and that does not come cheap um so related to that i think one of the things that has unfortunately stuck with me is um so i think there were more than a couple occasions where on top of you know the the costs of having to buy my own field gear, et cetera. uh, There were some occasions where I don't know, I think I felt pretty shitty for not knowing how different pieces of equipment worked or what they were called. And I often kind of felt left out to dry by the people that, you know, were supposed to be there to help me learn. Um, Mm -hmm. But instead sometimes in academia, the people that are supposed to help you learn, they kind of expect you to have some skills already. And it's just like, even with simple things like, I don't know how, knowing how to set up a tent. And I just, that's not how I grew up and I don't have those skills. So yeah. just knowing, again, going back to people's lived experiences, knowing the different lifestyles that people have and the way you're interacting with a whole group. Um, I think that's a very important thing to do.
0: Yeah. Were you like a little apprehensive starting to do fieldwork? work? then you know considering those sorts of things weren't sort of in your your childhood and your background or was it just more excited to do it <laughs> or <a> combo <laughs> yeah
1: yeah that, that's a really good question I I don't think I was apprehensive because of those experiences um I think I was I I guess the opposite maybe uh I definitely didn't see myself as a field biologist mm. and I think that was definitely because of how I was raised mm-hmm. uh I I saw myself more as like a Mm, what's what's the phrase like a computer biologist right
0: yeah yeah like a computational person
1: there you go computational computational (laughs) biology I don't know I just forgot that uh, yeah so I saw myself more as a computational biologist Mm -hmm. um I I guess some of that came because I was very interested in math and computers and technology so um yeah that's not to say though that I didn't also have other really really good field experiences uh that where I did have the stuff I needed, all the field gear supplied to me. A lot of that was in my undergrad lab. Just amazing field experiences going out to, did their, like we went to Florida and Puerto Rico um, and the Santa Barbara Bay. That was, those were all just amazing experiences. I'm so lucky to have experienced that during undergrad. Um, That's awesome. So yeah, uh, I, I've i done field, field research since then. And I'm still, honestly, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable doing field research uh, because it's, uh, I don't know. It's almost like a mindset. Like I, this, this isn't where I see myself fitting, but, uh, that's not to say that I don't have fun with it and I don't like it, but it still feels a little weird to me, to be honest, to be out in the field, uh, doing science, because I don't know, when I think of myself, I, I see myself at home, like interacting with family, you know, doing happy family things, um, not being in the field in the middle of nature by myself where my, uh, where the closest person is i don't know several, several hundred yards away. Yeah. <laughs> Again, growing up in Los Angeles just absolutely surrounded by people 24/7.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you think there are things that like we as a broad community of ecologists and evolutionary biologists could do to make people feel more welcomed and like they, you know, can adopt the the moniker of a field biologist?
1: That's something I haven't thought too much about, <clears throat> but uh, I I think ultimately a lot of a lot of answers towards being inclusive go back to not making assumptions about the skills or experiences that people do or do not have. Mm-hmm. Um, w- when I'm in the field, I I think I I'm very watchful of what others are doing. One to learn, but two to I don't know maybe maybe I get some of this from my parents, but to watch out for, I don't know, weird person in the bushes or snake under a rock, et cetera. Really, it comes down to, I I think, keeping myself safe. Um, So sometimes, I remember this one time I was um, in a state doing field research. And I had the proper permits. There was very little lighting. Um, My car was quite far away from me. um, And I was in the middle of a swamp collecting some frogs. Um, And so I saw a few cars drive by some people standing next to my car. And honestly, that was a very scary experience because um, there was almost no light that night. Um, I was literally in the the middle of nowhere. And luckily I think it was just a park ranger, but it Mm -hmm. could have not been. And yeah, yeah, it's sometimes very uncomfortable situations that people get put in. And that's not at all exclusive to um, me and my background. I think pretty much no matter who you are, um, situations like that can be tricky when you're out in the field.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you do much of your research solo? Like, do you have a, a buddy that comes with you to the field or anything most of the time or mm-hmm.
1: not? I, maybe like half the time, more than that. I, I try to invite my friends or do some collaborations and learn from other people. Um, I, like I said, I don't at all consider myself a, a field biologist or a naturalist. There's, hmm. there's lots of people that know everything about leopard frogs, which I'm quite familiar with, but it's like- yeah, I've studied these species and I know about them, but I don't know those species. Yeah. I understand.
0: Yeah. Oh, I get that. <laughs> in, in
1: the way that other people do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I wonder if that, sure. like, like, to some extent, you know, having a a friend with you in the field, like, would help at least a little bit to make people mm-hmm. feel more comfortable. You know, if that was sort of like, mm-hmm. like, common practice. I mean, I think it is common practice, but sort of like a requirement almost, that, like you're with yeah. someone else in case. Yeah situation like
1: that yeah absolutely I completely agree um other times like you know the, the research almost requires it or for your progress mm-hmm. and all that and uh, yeah there's there's lots of issues with that with that sentence that I just said but I mean mm-hmm. I was out there I made that decision too and I guess I was comfortable enough to embrace my field research that day
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I've definitely done that too where I've been like alone in the jungle and then I've been like I'm hmm wasn't a good idea (laughs) anything could happen yeah okay yeah right right I derailed us a little bit so I think that was the second thing that you had in a a list I think you had another thing that you wanted to talk about in terms of like
1: yeah right right just the last one um I think it's maybe alluding back to what I said about me not being a naturalist in the sense that other people are there I think my next point is is just kind of more of a warning like there's some toxic people out there like I think in in college I received a lot of comments like oh my goodness you've never been to so-and-so county in northern California and then like people sometimes give you like this disgusted look of like how how are you not like worldly as I um or you've never found an encetina salamander in the wild like what a sin like how could you and it's like dude I barely even know The things in my own city let alone the rest of California and it's just clear that we grew up completely differently
0: (laughs) yeah I'm sure that this is
1: I'm laughing but
0: yeah 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 yeah. I'm sure this is true like across the country but for some reason I found that it's particularly I've noticed that a lot particularly in California I think there's like a big culture (laughs) of like outdoorsmanship especially in
1: like northern (laughs)
0: California and so people are like Mm. oh you haven't like blah, 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 like done, you haven't gone to like this national park or done this thing. And I'm like,
1: no. Right, right.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> I also did Thing yeah. and stuff. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing I've noticed particularly about California too, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. We should, we should ask more people about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See if it's a trend. The larger
1: sample size. <laughs> right, right. No, but yeah. it's definitely something to be aware about that some people um, are like that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's something to also be aware about like on the other end, you know, think about things that we, like everyone, you know, might be saying of like, oh, you haven't done this thing that it's like, well, why? <laughs> like, that's not a great idea. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah,
1: <exactly. laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah.
0: So were there ever times when you thought about leaving academia, like through all of these different things that you've experienced or? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm, I, I guess I would say not so much. I, I think I'm still giving it a go seeing what happens. Uh, so far it's it's been working uh you know i've had to push myself through there a few times especially you know during a pandemic and defending during a pandemic um i i haven't come close to quitting yet i'd say but that's not to say my mental health hasn't just been absolute rock bottom at times Mm.
0: yeah is that something that you would feel comfortable talking about like mental health in
1: Mm. Well, I this last year, I think the pandemic hit me really hard. <laughs> it it wasn't so much the it wasn't so much the aspect of not being around people. I think I'm maybe for a scientist, I'm fairly introverted. <laughs> um, I think more so it was uh, like background anxiety, and, which led to other other issues. And mm, for someone that didn't grow grow up in in a family where seeking out mental health was like. Hmm, not it wasn't looked down upon negatively at all we just didn't really talk about it so it was, it was really hard taking those first steps um to being like oh i should probably talk to someone about this um so that was fairly uncomfortable luckily um i had a good health plan so you know i sought that help and it was fairly helpful i'm doing pretty good nowadays say. um but yeah it's in the middle of a pandemic would not recommend it. yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. It's brutal. Um, So you mentioned briefly that you did your dissertation during the pandemic. And I know I wasn't able to make it. I'm sorry. But I know that you did it in both Spanish and English. Um, And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I've never heard of... And maybe this is just my own small world, but I've never heard of someone doing that before. And so I think it's really amazing that you did that. And so, yeah, could you tell us like why you did that? And, and, you know, if people were supportive of you doing that and yeah, what inspired you to do
1: it? Right. So I think people, I, I'd go as far as saying, I was kind of surprised uh, at the amount of support I received because I think a lot of times in academia where, where are Kind of taught that there's like one way to do everything um and i full-on expected to convince other people to let me do it i mean i was gonna do it no matter what <laughs> <laughs> but uh I, I didn't receive any uh negative comments on when i told people hey i'm gonna I'm, my parents are gonna be here so i'm going to give this talk in two in two languages um so why i did it uh i think Yeah. Well, so far it's my biggest life event, I'd say. And honestly, I would have been damned if I didn't make my parents the focus of my biggest life event, you know, the heroes of my story. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say I took the opportunity to one, make my parents understand what I do. And two, (laughs) I guess this one, uh, was more of a kind of like a I got, I got you like, it took me six years worth of a PhD, but I got you all. Um, and what I mean by that is that I, I think it put people who are primarily English speaking in the shoes of immigrants, um, to put it that way, because usually throughout our scientific talks, we are, everything's in English and people who are from other countries, they, there's a lot of challenges involved with doing science in another language, publishing in other languages, et cetera. So I tried to make Spanish uh, the one and only focus of some talks, some of the text I only spoke in Spanish. So it was up to the English speakers to try to keep up effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, That's exactly what it was. I think just try to keep up. Um, And so, yeah, I think my motivation for doing all that, like I said, was including my parents uh, because I think a lot of people who are bilingual scientists will understand what I, what I'm saying here it is not easy to talk to your parents about the science that you do so I think we can all relate to that if your parents aren't scientists or uh, doctors etc whatever um, so it's one thing to communicate science but I think there's a whole another level to it than just a simple translation so for example Um, In Spanish, I know how to ask my taquero, person that sells you tacos, I know how to ask them for tres tacos de carnazada con chile verde y una horchata, you know, like, I know how to order food, I know how to tell my parents I love them. What I really struggle with is translating scientific words from English into Spanish. Mm. So translation works real well when you know the words in both languages, but it becomes so much more difficult when you've never actually physically spoken the thing you're trying to say a day of your life so like scientific Mm. terms
0: yeah I yeah I mean now that you say that I'm like oh yeah that that's obvious but I had never thought of of that before you know I was like oh you know it must be yeah because trying to think of like explaining science if I couldn't say the jargony words of science is so (laughs) there's a lot of it yeah yeah exactly and so that's essentially it sounds like what you're trying to do but it just ha- like isn't another language where you don't have any of the jargon and so now trying to explain right. it with the language that the words that you do have in like your vocabulary and your mm-hmm. vernacular
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's like I don't know translating gene expression like uh I know I know expression that's simple but it's like how to put it how to do a gene translation gene, okay but now put it in a phrase and the phrase that my parents can understand because sometimes it's not just getting the correct scientific translation from one language into another. It's also making sure that your audience is understanding what the heck you're saying because to to get over that jargony bit. So sometimes I'll be translating to my parents, oh, well, this is what I do. But then I kind of sneak in a little white lie um, about what I'm actually doing so that they could kind of get the gist of what I'm doing. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I speak some Spanish, you know, it's like, it's not great, but there's some. Um, and the thought of having to give a talk in Spanish would just send me into like an anxiety spiral. And so I have so much respect <laughs> for people who conduct their work in a language that's not their first language.
1: It's just, yeah, it's super. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. It was very nerve wracking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I think my, my strategy for uh, to get over the, well, first of all, the defense nerves and also Hmm. uh, speaking in a language I'm not naturally comfortable with. Like, I mean, I speak both languages. I'm, I'm quote unquote comfortable in Spanish, but at the same time, like I, I think in English and I speak in English, my, my, I I think it's a more common phrase in Spanish, but, but my dominance over Spanish is not anywhere near my dominance of English. Okay. So yeah, it was uh (laughs) it was a crucible test for sure. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's awesome though. That's, yeah, that's just so cool that you did that. Um, And so I think this brings us to the larger question, one of the larger questions that I wanted to ask you about, like how do the different identities that you hold, so you talked about being Mexican-American and also coming from sort of a low-income background, like how do these and any other identities that you want to ascribe to yourself, influence sort of your role in or how you perceive your role in science and also just sort of the trajectory that you've had um, as a scientist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: So I think this is a good spot to talk about uh, my experiences with privilege. So not that I haven't already, I guess, but uh, yeah, during college, I, I just was not aware of very many of the issues with academia and I think it was really during, when I started my master's program that I thought, huh, I, where I started thinking more about my role um, as a minority in the sciences and really learning more about my own privilege, which I do have as a male, um, as well as the privilege of other people mm-hmm. and, and how they play like in real life in academia. So uh, partially, it was really hard to learn the language, first of all, to learn how to speak about these diversity, um, issues about these diversity issues, because they are problems that academia faces. Um, but then the other thing was learning about diversity issues or ideas about relative, um, sorry, what's the word, uh, relative privilege that I was just not already used to, or that be because mm. I have those privileges, so therefore, it's like hard to contextualize them in my own head. Um, yeah. So, for example, one of the one of the ideas that was really, really hard to wrap my head around was, um, well, what is the importance of, of diverse thoughts in science? Some people approach it from, well, science is science. You're doing it the right way or the wrong way, and there's one way to do it, you know, one statistical test. Hopefully, it's not the T-test. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I I think even though I struggle to kind of wrap my head around the importance of diversity in science at first, um, it kind of sub- subconsciously eked its way into my science. So so to put like in to make it absolutely tangible, I think, um, let's take the my research that I already talked about. I I talked about getting morphological data and learning something about jumping performance across it ended up being 100 and almost 150 species of frogs mm-hmm. so can you just imagine how much money it would take to fly I think it was every continent that I surveyed except Antarctica of course um, <laughs> to fly to all those con- con- sorry continents to pay for all that housing to buy force plates um things to read temperature in the field that won't break under high humidity or if it's too cold or hot, et cetera, um, to sometimes pay field guides to, you know, food, all that stuff. Yeah. that That's just not going to get done during a PhD. So <laughs> I, I like to say that I took the low cash approach. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I, going into this project, my my second, third year of my PhD, I thought, you know, I, I bet there's, there's literature on, the exact relationship in between morphology and jumping performance this has to have been figured out already right but nope it was not um people have done derivations of the physical properties of jumping so you know velocity jumping angles gravity etc but they hadn't fully worked out um, a way to use only morphological information skeletons and muscles to make relative predictions about the jumping performance of species Mm -hmm. so that's that was my first chapter of my dissertation and from from then on I used that methodological approach that I developed uh to effectively save myself from doing my uh from doing like I don't know a 30-35 year dissertation however long it (laughs) would that was a random number but it would have taken so long to collect all these data if I couldn't um Use, use museum specimens to collect data and ask questions about jumping evolution. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one really obvious way where my my experiences, my identity as a minority scientist impacted my science. And I think it's a really good example. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much so tooting my horn here, but it's like, come on, I saved a lot of money for myself. I'm going to be proud of that <laughs> and, and time, time is money. Um, yeah. Another way that I see my identity coming into my science is in my overall attitude toward academia, I think. So I, I don't wanna work somewhere, and this applies to any other type of job, honestly. I don't wanna work somewhere where I'm not valued, where people don't respect me or my struggles, and that includes work-life balance. So mm-hmm. I, I've been just absolutely blessed with having amazing mentors throughout my whole career. And um, yeah, if I get rejected eventually from what seems like my dream job, possibly because i don't know some racist bs that's actually more common than i initially thought in academia then that's fine i don't want to work with you anyway like you don't deserve me and i can (laughs) i can like feel my friends clapping for me when i say that because uh if it's not obvious to you already then i mean hopefully me just saying that um not you you but just like anyone that might be listening yeah Then hopefully that makes a bulb click you know (laughs) yeah so um everything always comes with a caveat right so here's the caveat i i obviously love what i do but but my science does not define me um and that's maybe something that's maybe i'm not fully there yet but um that's hard for people to understand if that's one of their goals to understand that that their science does not define them um so i'll get to i'll get directly back to my point of how my identity is influencing um my perspective in academia but um yeah, if, if one day academia decides to push me out, then again, going back to me valuing myself and my work and me not defining myself by my science, if academia pushes me out, then I mean, that's fine. I'll, it's not the end of the world for me and I'll just go on to do whatever comes next. Um, I think that just having that type of attitude, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it comes from my bond with my family because it's like, I think no matter what happens, I'm always gonna have that support. And if what I do doesn't work out for me, I know I'm going to be pretty good at something else, maybe. <laughs> so what I my point here that I wanted to make um, is I, you had asked me about um, if I ever wanted to quit science. My answer was no. Um, so I, I said I'm still kind of giving the waters a, a test drive. So I think so far I've been OK at this science thing, like maybe even pretty good at it. Um, and so if I make it there one day, um, then... You know, maybe I'm, I'm okay at it, but what I want, I think ultimately what I want is for my students and their students to just be much better at it than I am. Um, so I I say this because I think it's a direct comparison to my relationship with my family. So the more barriers I'm breaking in academia, then the less barriers that my students, <laughs> my students, um, the more barriers that maybe someone I mentor one day um, will have to, not more than the less barriers that they will have to break down one day. So that's just like how my parents broke barriers for me. And without that happening, then I can't go as high, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful answer. Speaking of students that you hopefully one day will have, um, do you have any advice for people who are interested in pursuing careers in science or like continuing into academia?
1: Yeah. So I think my, the thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is the importance of finding your people in science. So I think what I mean by that is find people that not only look like you, but think like you, have the same experiences as, as you do, walks, talks, and acts like you, you know? So there's a, oh, I hadn't mentioned the second thing, I think. So the second one is, I'll go back to that first point, but the second point, um, the advice I would give is to develop a strong hobby ethic. This mm-hmm. one's a shorter response, so I'll just knock this one out real quick. So, um, a strong hobby ethic. We we know about what the phrase strong work ethic means, and um, but strong hobby ethic. So, mental health is is a very important thing in science, and if if one doesn't have hobbies, things to keep them sane, then. Ooh, I can't, I don't want to imagine that. So there's, what I wanted to point out is, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a paper that was just published in PLOS One. <laughs> uh, this paper surveyed a majority of the postdocs in the United States and uh, surveyed their perspectives on staying in science, the challenges they face, et cetera. And one thing that stuck out to me was the importance the importance of having a hobby in science. So Mm. getting back to the point, not defining yourself by the science. So like having a life outside of work. Um, And if I can real quick, I'd like to try to read the author's names out.
0: Yeah, and I can also include it in the show notes um, for this episode.
1: Yeah, so the authors for this study was published May 6th of this year. Um, I'm I'm not gonna pronounce these correctly. Afonja Salmon, Wiley and Lambert. Um, the title is Postdocs Advice on Pursuing a Research Career in Academia, a Qualitative Analysis of Free Text Survey Responses. So yeah, that's the first bit is having a hobby, keeping yourself sane. And um, the, the other thing that I wanted to get back to is Wait, sorry, what we, I mean by finding your people. Before
0: we get to finding your people, because I think that's a great point that we should talk about for a while. Um, what are um, your hobbies? I'm curious. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: all right. So um, let's see what keeps me sane. Um, I I think a lot of academics, weirdly enough, like I don't know why, but there's a lot of people that are scientists and they're runners. It's a little weird, I think. Me! <laughs> but my hobbies. Um, <laughs> um, I, I enjoy weightlifting and swimming. Um, so... Yeah, I'm just not a runner.
0: <laughs> I also enjoy weightlifting. Um, yeah, My so it's been weird. partner, who is also by all, in our department, um, weightlifts and also swims. So I'll make sure to introduce you when you get here.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's me not being a runner. At times, it's like, ooh, how do I click with these people? <laughs> <laughs> um, at least from like that social aspect, you know? Then it's like, how? Uh, oh, let's see what else. Let's see what other parts of our personality click. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see um yeah the i think my main hobby that i want to highlight is honestly i play a lot of video games um and i wanted to highlight because i know very few other scientists that like play video games as much as i do it was only recently that i that i spoke to another professor that plays video games and i'm like i'm so comfortable speaking to you right now what is this (laughs) yeah like i said I, i haven't really met a lot of other people in academia that play video games so but that's my big hobby
0: so yeah, we were talking then about the second thing was like finding your community of people.
1: So finding your people, what I mean by that is in a, in one phrase, find people that you relate to. Uh, those can be friends, mentors, etc. cetera. Um, I mentioned that when I was in my master's, I started thinking about uh, my relationship with privilege and thinking about how other people have or do not have privilege, et cetera. So I think this largely came about by the program I was in. So I was in the frontiers master's program at the University of Michigan. And so this program <coughs> recruited only uh, historically underrepresented people in science. And I think I was so lucky to, to have a cohort where we all had very similar shared experiences. And for to have that kind of community around you, especially when you're transitioning, for example, from California to Michigan, when you've never left your home state, um, <laughs> It really, really eased the transition. So it it would have been a whole lot of nope if uh, I was forced to do that without this program. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you you can find friends, find mentors that can relate to your experiences and actually understand why something is stressful or frustrating to you, etc. I think that is... mm, a significant part of overcoming uh challenges you may face or at least dealing with the challenges you may face in academia Mm -hmm. uh the trick is finding those people because not everyone has access to those communities um or yeah sometimes it can just be difficult making new friends etc but yeah science is a a, should be a space for everyone even though some people choose to remain ignorant
0: Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing with us um if people want to get in touch with you, is there a good way for people to do that?
1: Yeah, so well, I actually just set up my new Stanford email. So mm-hmm. my, my Stanford handle and my Twitter handle are the same. They're my first and middle initials, B H followed by my last name, Watis at Stanford or on Twitter. So yeah, I think you can put those, you can link those up on the website, right?
0: Yep, I certainly will. Awesome. Okay, well, great. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thanks everyone for listening. And thanks again to Brian for being here with us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review on whatever service you're using to listen to this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email podcast at gmail.com or go to our website, RootsToSemPodcast.com or you can get in touch with me directly on Twitter at Stephanie Katie. And the last name is C-A-T-Y. So thanks again for listening and we'll be back soon with another episode.